It is understandable enough if the world does not wish right now to heed warnings of another potential conflict. There is more than enough in the way of actual conflict to be getting on with. But one part of the world which used to be a relative haven of cooperation, the Arctic, has recently become less so. Russia's ongoing rampage in Ukraine has forced a reorganising of relationships among the world's northernmost nations. This became a theme of the most recent Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. This event, held annually at the Harper Conference Centre in the Icelandic capital, has for most of its history been a relatively unstressed and affable affair, reflective of that tradition of cooperation among the countries of the Arctic and near-Arctic, especially as they confronted the effects of climate change. This year, things were a little more anxious. In this special episode, recorded at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, we ponder some of the questions posed by this recalibration. How can the Arctic adjust to working without and around Russia? Are there opportunities as well as hazards? And does the Arctic's culture of pragmatic compromise still have something to teach the rest of us? This is The Foreign Desk. Siri does not understand Icelandic. And unless we make sure that the language thrives in this age of interdependence, globalization and new technology, we will ultimately be stuck with a language that a historian like myself will be able to understand and that will be used for sure, but not in everyday life. So many have no appreciation of how proximate our neighbors are. From mainland to mainland, it's 57 miles. And so when I think about our Arctic capabilities, we have to look to that first line of defense, and that's in Alaska. We don't have an interest in destroying our own environment because this is our home. Arctic development doesn't mean ruining the society or the nature. Let me give you one example, like fishing. We have a history of overfishing everywhere in the world, many places of the world. Fishing is 96% of Greenland's export. If they overfish, they lose 96% of their bet. I mean, they have no interest in overfishing. We have a track record everywhere in the world has. Once upon a time, London, Paris, Berlin were also just beautiful nature. Someone decided to build houses there. I don't see why we should be treated any differently. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. The day before the Arctic Circle Assembly convened, the team from the Foreign Desk made the short drive from downtown Reykjavik to Bessastadir, the windswept, as you'll shortly hear, residents of Iceland's president. In the library, we sat down with President Gudni Thorlesius Johannesson. I began by asking about his recent speech opening Iceland's parliament, in which he had cited a thousand-year-old oration, later noted in the 13th-century Icelandic sagas of Snorri Sturluson. I wondered if the sagas still offer guidance for governance today. Yes, I would think so, and that particular speech has been cited on so many occasions. Well, it's a fact that if you quote it, you can be pretty sure that everybody knows the uh, message. Mm. Einar from Þverá was warning against foreign intervention or foreign submission, saying that we should be good friends with the king of Norway and all other leaders abroad, but we should not become their subjects. So it's been used all over in Iceland's so-called struggle for independence in the 19th century and debates ever since about 
NATO membership, about EU membership, about the presence of US forces here and so on and so forth. And it just so happens that the next year, thousand years will have passed since those words uh, were spoken at the old Althing. So I felt it appropriate to uh, connect the uh, present with the past in that way. Einar was speaking, of course, in an extremely different world at a time at which probably the entire rest of the world didn't really impinge on Iceland at all. And Iceland, of course, like all countries, its view of the world is governed by its geography, which has and is very remote and isolated, but no country is remote or isolated really anymore. And Have you seen in recent years that starting to change the way that Iceland views its place in the world? Well, to begin with, Iceland has changed tremendously as a society in recent decades. Well over 20%, if not more, of the population are either foreign-born or their parents were born abroad. And Icelandic society therefore has become more diverse, more varied, more free, more open. So um, in that sense, our place in the world has changed tremendously. Some things remain the same. Maybe you can hear through our talk the wind howling on this North Atlantic island in the middle of nowhere. But it is at the same time, just like independence and interdependence are interwoven and need to operate together, we have this challenge ahead of us to make sure that we maintain what we want to maintain, our national heritage, our pride of being an Icelander, and accommodating and welcoming those who move here from abroad to live and work or seek shelter. Because if we don't do it well, we all will suffer. Therefore, I think... I should continue, or anyone in my position, to quote the sagas at the convention of our parliament and in the hope and expectation that those who uh, move to Iceland from abroad will be able to connect with it. But then we have to make sure that those who move to Iceland will get a good education about our history, about our heritage, and not the least about our language. It's a point I would like to stress that we need to and must preserve the language that was spoken here, which means, incidentally, that I can easily read the words of Einar from (laughs) Ferrau, even though they were written almost a thousand years ago and spoken a thousand years ago. We must make sure that this language thrives in the uh, age of globalization and digitization, and we must make sure that it thrives in a society where people are coming and moving in from abroad in large numbers. We need to make sure that people who come here get a decent education, teaching of Icelandic, and we need to make sure that we can use Icelandic in our communications with all kinds of gadgets. You know, if I were to ask, you know, and I don't know, an average teenager here in Iceland, uh, whether she or he has just moved here or was born and raised here, I'd ask, you know, do you know how many people live in Altanes? Altanes is the municipality or the part of town where the presidential residence is. Then she or he would say, no, I have no idea. Let me find out. And that person, that teenager will say, hey, Siri, how many people live in Altanes? But Siri does not understand Icelandic yet. She has a younger sister, Embla, or yeah, that's her <laughs> name, who's learning but we're not there yet. 
And unless we make sure that the language thrives in this age of interdependence, globalization, and new technology, unless we do that, we will ultimately be stuck with a language that a historian like myself will be able to understand and that will be used for sure, but not in everyday life. So uh, you can talk about our challenges today and tomorrow and next week and next month, but taking the long-term view, the future of the Icelandic language is something that we need to look at. And then somebody will say, what about, what about, you know, we can move into what aboutism, the situation of Iceland in the world today, but let's not lose sight of this aspect of our society, an integral part of what it is to be Icelandic, the preservation of the language. So that is something that is close to my heart, as you can hear, through, <laughs> through the wind. But is it nevertheless important, do you think, for Iceland to be heard on the global stage, for all that it is obviously a small and remote country, and though it is a member of NATO, it possesses no standing military? Do you think there is a perspective that is endowed by Iceland's unique situation that does give it perhaps a perspective that is useful to other countries? I should think so. Um we are located between east and west geographically, but of course Iceland is a member of NATO, a founding member of NATO, and throughout the Cold War Iceland was an integral part of Western defenses, so we were not neutral then and we're not neutral in this sense either today. Do, do you see yourselves becoming less neutral? Because the Keflavik NATO base was closed at one point and then sort of reopened. Well, it has not been reopened, but the uh, US authorities decided that in 2006 their resources would be of better use elsewhere and the situation in the Arctic was such at the time that there was no need for surveillance, just like the US chief of staff remarked at the time, if I remember correctly, the only uh, Russian planes flying in this vicinity are some planes flying to an airplane show in Arkansas or somewhere. <laughs> so the threat was considered minimum. But things change, as we can see. And now, yes, uh, I remember uh, another NATO official who remarked casually and off the record, of course, that strategically Iceland was now in the middle of nowhere. And here we are in the so-called middle of nowhere, but the strategic location is clear to all. The Arctic is there, Russia is there, and there is this risk of increased militarization in the Arctic. And therefore, I think that those who said one or two decades ago that the strategic importance of Iceland was minimum will maybe have reconsidered now. There was, of course, that fairly major adjustment in Iceland's relationship with Russia in June. Iceland suspended its operations at its embassy in Moscow. Were you surprised by how angry Russia either was or pretended to be at that? I mean, I know it's Russia's standard response to just lash out massively at any perceived slight, but is it quite weird when you think, hang on, where Iceland? We are this tiny country and all of a sudden Russia is sort of stomping its feet and blowing steam out of its ears at us? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think the response was more or less did not come as a surprise. And it was the view here in Iceland, the view taken by the foreign minister and the government, that it was not sensible to maintain an ambassador in Moscow with our limited resources. And therefore, the... Uh, embassy was suspended in that sense, but diplomatic relations still remain. And it is, I believe, not a matter of constant 
debate in Moscow now whether Iceland has an embassy there or not. But you mentioned, you know, our capabilities on the global scene, and to be sure, there are some uh, cases where Iceland's voice can be and should be heard loud and clearly. We have a story to tell, if you like. I think we should always be careful not to exaggerate our capabilities to intervene or have our voice heard. But when it comes to some aspects of our society and our economy and our political views, I believe that we can deliver a message that needs to be delivered. Just take our story on gender equality. There's still work to be done in Iceland, and there will be a strike here on the 24th of October to commemorate the fact that on the 24th of October in 1975, almost 50 years ago, the women of Iceland just stopped working in the household, in the workplace, demonstrating their equal role and duties, if not more. So uh, for the last decade or more, Iceland has topped the World Economic Forum's index when it comes to gender equality. And we can tell the story that gender equality is not only a human rights issue, the right to give everyone the potential to show what they're capable of, regardless of gender or any other parameters you will find, but also that it's a practical issue. If everyone in society is allowed to show their worth, then you will actually benefit from increased gender equality, and Iceland is an example of that. But let me reiterate that we haven't reached some gender equality paradise here, but we can demonstrate with facts that this has benefited Icelandic society and it should benefit other societies. Also, uh, let us reiterate through the howling wind that we are in an, on an island in the middle of the ocean. Fisheries is something that uh, other people on this globe might say to themselves, well, the Icelanders must know a thing or two about fisheries. And that is a case in point where we can say to others, listen, this is how we do things, and maybe you can learn from us as well. Again, this is also close to my heart, just like the future of the Icelandic language, because I'm a historian by profession and I... I wrote my doctoral dissertation on fishing disputes between Iceland and our adversaries uh, <laughs> in the 20th century. You mentioned the howling wind, which is whipping around where we're sitting, which is the library of the presidential residence. I just wanted to ask, finally, is there an average working day in the life of the president of Iceland? It's morning right now, so after you're done with us, what does the rest of your day hold? Well, no day is average and no day is just like the one before or the one coming up it's a tremendous honor every day it has aspects that are no longer a surprise to me i've been in office for seven years now but this role is not political on a day-to-day -day basis as in the u.s or france or other countries so um, i do not enter parliament and I do not run the government but the indirect influence of this office has always been there so you have to make sure that you try to use its powers and influence in a positive way so that must be constantly on your mind but apart from that it is a matter of meeting people receiving guests like you early in the morning and then as is in this case flying off to Norway, where we will be celebrating later in the week the 100th anniversary of the Icelanders Association in Oslo, the capital, with all kinds of cultural events. I will have the honor of being received by His Majesty the King of Norway, 
and that now I'm almost like name dropping, but that is also <laughs> part of the office meeting other heads of state. And as long as you treat everyone with equal respect, be it a king of a foreign land or a or a kid who comes for a visit, then I think you can look back and say, well, I did my best and it, things will go okay. That was President Gudni Thorlesius Johannesson of Iceland. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. The business cards of Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska feature a map of the contiguous United States, what Alaskans call the lower 48, upon which is superimposed a map of Alaska. The lesson? Alaska is really surprisingly big. Senator Murkowski contends that Alaska's strategic importance is equally underappreciated, especially now. I began by asking Senator Murkowski if hailing from and representing Alaska has given her a different viewpoint of Russia to the rest of the United States because of their geographical proximity. They are our neighbours. So many in even the rest of the United States have no appreciation of how proximate our neighbors are. From mainland to mainland, it's 57 miles. It is two miles between Little Diomede, Alaska, and Big Diomede, Russia. Two miles. And so I know that there's an oft-repeated phrase out there that I can see Russia from my house. Well, (laughs) Honestly, if you live in Little Diomede, you can, in fact, see Russia from your home. And so think about what that proximity means. It means that you have Alaskans who not only view those across the strait as their neighbors, but their family members. Mm -hmm. There was a period in time not too many years ago when we actually had what we called freedom flights. They were flights that were regularly regularly, like once a week, going from Nome, Alaska, over into Providenia, to Magadan. These were an effort to reconnect families, to allow for that neighbor-to-neighbor relation culturally, a great deal of commonality in dance and tradition. And so when we think about it as Alaskans and the neighbor to the west there, it is not so far off. We have many Russian communities where families have come over and established themselves in communities that are somewhat insular with Mm. Russian families, but there is a lot of connection. And so when war presents, when that wall really does rise in between our two countries, it takes on a different complexion in the state of Alaska than it might in other areas. I assume when you said it, you weren't talking about Alaska specifically, because this would be pretty hardcore revanchism, even by Vladimir Putin's standards. But you did say a while back that you were concerned that Vladimir Putin had, as you put it, one hand on Ukraine and the other on the Arctic. Do you think we're not taking seriously enough the possibility of actual Russian predations upon the Arctic? Oh, I believe very much that Putin would like to see much greater Russian dominance in the Arctic. Mm. Now, geographically, they occupy a big space up there. We get that. But I think what he is seeking to do is to broaden that beyond that mass of geography that he has. It's dominance in the waters. It is establishing a presence, a defense presence, 
an economic presence that says to the world, the Arctic is our domain. So yes, I think very much that he looks at this and has greater ambitions than perhaps most in the United States would think that he does. And I think that we should view that with some concern. Obviously, partially as a consequence of Russia's assault upon Ukraine, the Arctic Circle has become much more, well, NATO-fied, I guess. Finland has joined, Sweden presumably will. Do you think that the Arctic also needs to become much more obviously militarized? I know your, your Arctic Commitment Act, which you sponsor, does call for a permanent U.S. maritime presence in the Arctic. Do you mean specifically a U.S. naval presence in the Arctic? Well, think about how much water we have in the U.S. Arctic that is pretty open. We have a wonderful Coast Guard. We appreciate all the assets, but in fairness, our coverage is very limited, and we have effectively no naval presence in the U.S. Arctic waters. We have no naval presence in Alaska, and it is something that we have pressed the Navy to review, to look at that specifically. We've done that through appropriations language. We've done it through private conversations. And so when I think about our Arctic capabilities, we have to look to that first line of defense, and that's in Alaska. And so whether it is air superiority, whether it is our preparedness from a surveillance capacity with drones, but clearly with assets that help to cover our oceans around Alaska. We have the Arctic Ocean, we have the Bering Sea, we have the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Alaska there. We have a lot of territory with very little presence right now. Would you imagine, though, that there might be some pushback against that? I mean, obviously, Russia would say that this is the United States deliberately escalating tensions, but that's what Russia says about everything. But are you worried that there would be a similar kind of pushback from your own allies and partners in the Arctic who have prided themselves for years on this being a very, very low-stress, low-tension neighborhood? And we want to keep it low-stress, low-tension neighborhood. And I think the way that we can project and ensure that is to make sure that there's just a level of preparedness. Russia is doing far more to invest in their defense capabilities in the Arctic. And they're doing this at a time when they're looking for every bit of funding that they can to advance this awful war against Ukraine. But they are still trying to put their influence, well, it is their influence in their own region, but they're still trying to build up and enhance that military capacity. And think about this then. If you don't have the ability to make those investments yourselves, who might you turn to? And this is where we see them turning to China. And this is where we should all be concerned about this growing partnership in the Arctic between Russia and China. Russia has made very, very clear, we want to be the Arctic dominant country up here because of our geography and, and our history. We want to and we shall be. And this is one area where historically we haven't seen a lot of partnering between Russia and China. That's flipped. We're seeing them do exercises in the Gulf of Alaska, near Alaskan waters, the Russians and the Chinese together. You're hearing statements coming from Putin about the cooperation with the Russian Coast Guard and the Chinese Coast Guard. I think they're looking to China for a little help 
with investment capital. How are they going to make sure that they have the strength and the capability to build and to then maintain some of this very, very, very expensive infrastructure in the far north? Well, you do it with different partners. Who are their partners? China. Do you have the sense that the Biden administration is starting to take this stuff more seriously? I mean, I know there has been quite the stampede to Alaska in recent months of various Biden administration officials, but does that represent them taking the Arctic more seriously or does that represent them thinking that you're a Republican they can actually do business with? Well, I'd like to think it's because for 20 years I have been pounding all administrations, whether it's Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush, to recognize the Arctic, to recognize that the United States is an Arctic nation. And there are challenges that we need to rise to, and there's extraordinary opportunities, so let's get in the game. But in fairness, part of it is the geopolitical tension that we are seeing right now. And that brings attention. I noted to somebody yesterday that we've worked so hard to ensure that the Arctic is this zone of peace. But when a place is quiet, nobody pays any attention to it and nobody gets any resources to it. And then everybody pays attention when it's not quiet. And then when there's a problem, when there's a hot spot now. So now there's more attention. You'll probably recall that it wasn't too many months ago when the Chinese balloon was moving its way across Alaska and then over Canada and then into the United States, and everyone in the world was watching it. And it really kind of put Alaska on the map for many people in the country who said, wow, I didn't really think about Alaska as being the front lines of defense here coming across from China. And it was like, well, are you not looking at a map? But in fairness, most people don't look at the map the way that we do. I've got a great map in my bag here that is the polar view. Mm -hmm. And the polar view really puts it in context, folks. It is something that we need to start looking at instead of the map on the wall that shows Alaska in a tiny little box down here next to Mexico. So we've got to look at the world a little bit differently. And the Arctic holds a very, very significant place in that map. You, of course, were recently re-elected, which means you do have another six years to pester the current president and whoever might succeed them. Do you have any thoughts, though, or have you considered what you might do personally if your party chooses to re-nominate President Trump? You were, to remind our listeners, one of seven Republican senators who did vote to convict him in his second impeachment trial, as a result of which you were censured by your own party in Alaska, who tried to get somebody else into your seat instead. Would you still stick with the Republican Party and still consider yourself a Republican no matter what? Well, I will tell you, I hope the Republicans do not nominate former President Trump for the Republican nomination. I think that would be unfortunate for our party. And as one who would never support Donald Trump for office, I think it would be unfortunate for our country. I don't want to put any decisions out there in terms of my status within the party. I think people know that I am a pretty independent character. I've demonstrated that. I was returned to the United States Senate in 2010 without the endorsement of my party. In fact, just the opposite. But as I have said, I don't just represent Republicans in the state of Alaska. I represent 
all Alaskans, regardless of party. And so my allegiance is not to a party. It is not to a party, and it is certainly not to a person like we see with former President Trump. That was U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. While the Arctic Circle Assembly was preoccupied with more recent concerns attached to Russia, longer-term developments were not forgotten. The balance between protecting and developing the Arctic environment is certainly a fine one, but one about which many of the people who actually live there have some almost startlingly pragmatic views. Our final guest today is Madskvist Fredriksson, Executive Director at the Arctic Economic Council. I began by asking Mads how he would characterise what the Arctic Economic Council does. Good question. The Arctic Economic Council is a pan-Arctic business membership organization. So what does this mean? Pan-Arctic, we cover the whole region. So that means that we have companies from across the Arctic region. So eight Arctic states, but also from France, from Greece, from Switzerland, everyone who has an interest in investing in the Arctic. And we are independent. So we're not a government organization. You will be aware, of course, that I think there's a certain at large still a a reflexive horror at the very idea of doing any sort of exploitative business in the Arctic. Do you think business in the Arctic does need to be regulated differently in in acknowledgement of the very different kind of environment that it is? It's it's super interesting because so for many years, the Arctic has been the poster boy for polar bears and climate change and so on. Yeah, the lonely polar bear on the ice flow. Exactly. We have all seen that for people that don't live in the Arctic, people that never traveled inside the Arctic. But if you go inside the Arctic, what you see there is you see houses, you see cars and normal societies. So the question is, like, let's take, I live in Tromsø, deep inside the Arctic Circle. Should that part of Norway be regulated different than Oslo should? Should Greenland, for example, a country of 56,000 people, should they be regulated differently than, you know, what they decide to do as a nation? You know, do they have the right as a nation to rule independently? I would say yes, so. And I don't think outsiders should come and decide what Greenland wants to do as a nation. And then there's also another issue of we don't have an interest in destroying our own environment because this is our home. I always say the Arctic region got three things that the rest of the world needs. So if you live somewhere in London or in Paris or in Berlin, what you really need is you need food, for example. We got seafood that is certified sustainable, a lot more sustainable than any food you can get elsewhere. Mm. That's an industry. You know, should that be regulated differently? We got green energy. We are right now in Iceland. Geothermal everywhere is 100% green energy. We Norway, where I live, 100% green energy. I had negative electricity prices because we have too much green energy. Should that be regulated? It's hard to see why we should be regulated differently. We are more green. We are more sustainable. Then you got the mining sector, super controversial. But alternative is, are you going to have mining in London or Paris? No. Are we going to pick? So the option is between the Democratic Republic of Congo or Canada. You know, and, and who has the strictest regulation there? So, And the reason why I list all of this is to say there's a lot of nuances. You know, So there's a lot of misunderstanding of what is the Arctic and what does Arctic development mean. Arctic development doesn't mean ruining the society or the nature. But, I mean, it's, it's not like there are no other historical examples, though, of local environments being ruined in the long term in pursuit of short-term gain. How do you guard against that? No, definitely. I mean, there's a track record globally for this. This is not only in the Arctic a few years ago, is together with World Economic Forum, we introduced what is called the Arctic Investment Protocol. 
So the Arctic Investment Protocol is a set of guidelines of how, if you come in as an outsider, because it's quite often outsiders who has this track record, and if you come in as outsider and wants to exploit whatever natural resources, it has to be done in a manner that it respects the indigenous peoples, has to be done in a manner that respects the environment and traditional knowledge. So it's a, basically it's a set of six principles that guides how to do it the right way. Let me give you one example, like fishing. We have a history of overfishing everywhere in the world, many places of the world. Fishing is 96% of Greenland's export. If they overfish, they lose 96% of their value. I mean, they have no interest in overfishing. So then the question is, how do we be careful with outsiders that illegal fishing ring and so on? And that's regulations, but that exists already. So, yeah, just to say, we have a track record. Everywhere in the world has. Once upon a time, London, Paris, Berlin were also just beautiful nature. Someone decided to build houses there. You know, like, I don't see why we should be treated any differently. Do you have a concern, though? And you, you, you talked about the remoteness and the smallness of the town you come from, of any economic transformation leading to broader transformations, which might not end up being all that ideal. I mean, I know, or at least so I read, that you know, beneath the Arctic, you have 15% of the world's untapped crude, 33% of its undiscovered gas, any amount of rare earth elements. How do you forestall a, a massive stampede? It's a very good question. So to put it into context, we have 4 million people in the Arctic region. So 4 million people in a vast landscape. So first of all, we got space. We got space for one wind turbine <laughs> and one mine. You know, like we're not that many people. When it comes to, say, you know, oil and gas, I think we are facing it out. And I think the solution here is green energy. If you want to find green energy, you need to go to the Arctic because... I live in a town of 70,000 people. This is the second largest town in the whole Arctic region. But we have some of the best wind resources. We have some of the best hydro resources in the world. So the question is, are we going to put wind turbines in central London? Or are we going to put them in the Arctic where there's plenty of space and where we got transport infrastructures for it? And then the rare earth elements is a perfect example. Europe gets 98% of the rare earth elements from China. We want to de-risk this, maybe not decouple, but de-risk. So should we rather get it from the Arctic region? Yes, that will interfere with the pristine environment that you're mentioning. But if we want to build a wind turbine, if you want to drive an electric vehicle, if you want to use a cell phone or a laptop, you need rare earth elements. If you want to put a satellite into space. So if we want to continue the just transition, the green transition, we need rare earth elements. The question is, do you trust China, Democratic Republic of Congo, or Norway the most to do this responsibly? Just finally, one other area of economic development I did want to ask about, which is tourism. And obviously, the Arctic does not suffer from a lack of people wanting to visit it. Can you foresee a point at which that might need to be managed or restricted? Definitely. Because we have been ignored for so many years in the Arctic region, suddenly we got some development that might not be positive. You could also mention data centers. Mm -hmm. But tourism is one of them that for many years, like the Blue Lagoon in Iceland, 15 years ago, no one wanted to go and dip themselves in volcanic sulfic water. You know, it was not attractive. (laughs) Now they suddenly made it attractive. Now people are traveling from around the world to come and dip themselves in the volcanic water. But now we have a challenge of maybe there's too many tourists. So what we see, there's a massive trend right now. In Norway, they have a tourist tax. It's just a few quid. In Iceland, they're talking about how can we distribute the tourists to different places? How can we make not only Reykjavik exciting or the areas? How can we distribute them around the island? 
And in Greenland, for example, they're saying, should we have less cruise ships? Because it's also what tourism is many things. You know, you can high-end mm. tourists that leaves a lot of money, or you can get cruise ships. And cruise ships is a massive challenge because they eat on board, they shop on board, they come in, they step on the ground, they ruin the environment, and they leave again. So cruise tourism, I think, is the massive challenge. I don't think high-end you know, luxury tourism is a big issue. You know, someone leaves a lot of money behind. Also, it depends on what areas, you know, where do we have tourists and how do we make sure they don't leave too many disturbances behind? But it's a massive challenge. That was Mads Kvist Fredriksson, Executive Director at the Arctic Economic Council, speaking to us at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also to Matilda Raffinsdottir and all the team at the Arctic Circle Assembly. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.